Hello and welcome to episode 241 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now coming up on today's episode, I'm joined by the film director, John Irvin. He is responsible for directing some of the most incredible films in the 80s and 90s. Stuff like The Dogs of War, Hamburger Hill, for me one of the best war films ever made and the Arnold Schwarzenegger absolute masterpiece, Raw Deal. We get to sit down and talk all about these films in great detail. It's an honour to have him on, and knowing how much my dad loves Hamburger Hill, it's been a real treat to get to talk in so much more detail about the making of this film, the absolute huge, crazy conditions that they had to go through, and so much more. I absolutely love this interview, and that'll be coming up in just a couple of minutes' time. I always like to use the intro for each and every episode of Mark and Me just to touch base and talk about my last episode. On episode 240, I was joined by Skylar Croom, the frontman from the amazing band He Is Legend. I've said on record now for the last couple of weeks, this is my favourite interview that I've done this year. I love everything about Skylar. The response was amazing. We talked so much about film and I really hope one day we can launch a podcast just talking films because it'd be amazing. I missed the skip to the end days and Sky just felt like I'd known him my whole life. So thanks to everyone that listened and for the amazing feedback that came from that interview. But today I'm talking to an absolute legend, the one and only John Irvin. So I think the best thing to do right now is to get straight to it. So here's me and John talking all things film. So John, thank you for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Pleasure. John, what I like to do is always ask about the very early days. So talk to me when you're growing up. Tell me about those first films that you remember seeing that made you fall in love with cinema. A very good question. Um, I uh, started my, um, I think my passion started um, when I was about six years old. Um, and uh, my mother and my twin brother and I were um, living in Whitley Bay in Northumberland, as it then was, uh, uh, waiting for my father to come back from the war. My mother was very anxious and sick. In the afternoon, she used to walk across the, the links to a cinema, and we would follow. And I remember seeing films with her, like Brief Encounter, in which nothing much happened, it seemed to me, at the age of six. And yet it had a profound effect on my mother. My mother was crying. I wasn't used to seeing uh, grown-ups um, tearing up. And I was fascinated, of course, by the power of this um, medium to move my mother in such a way. And I also remember, rather like David Lean, at that tender age, looking up into the beam of the projector, happened um, by the proje- projection box, yeah, and seeing the smoke curling up into the light, and the whole experience to me was utterly in the dark, absolutely magical. Um, it was, as Orson Welles says, when they, when the lights went down in the theatre, it was like shutting your eyes, and then commencing to dream. And the film was a sort of dream world. And I remember my grandmother was a great theatre girl, and we used to go to the, regardless of what was being shown, I think, 
uh, we were uh, taken every Monday <coughs> to see uh, plays uh, uh, at the theatre, the Theatre Royal in Newcastle. And I remember coming back from one play and I was cross-examined or questioned by my parents and asked me, which medium, which would I prefer, going to the theatre or going to the cinema? And without hesitation, I said, oh, uh, the cinema. I like going to the cinema. And it became an absolute fascination for me because I was then sent away to boarding school at the tender age of six and a half, I think, seven. And I arranged my gang into, into a film, film unit. A pretend film unit, obviously. And I had an air camera. And I used to arrange... Uh, my friends, we call ourselves the Adventure Gang, um, into films, and I would stage fights and pretend to be the director and the cameraman, and I um, command my friends into all sorts of harebrained schemes, you know, fighting, rolling down hills, terraces, throwing things at each other, bows and arrows, whatever, and even romance. <laughs> and so I. At a very early age, I was um, I was uh, an action director, <laughs> definitely an action director at that age, because uh, it was I pretended to be filming, having given them a story, my friends fighting. So that's where it all started, I suppose. Also, of course, it was a forbidden pleasure. My father did not approve of going to the cinema, uh, and um, pocket money was not a not available for that, so I had to sort of cheat a little bit um, in terms of how I'd spent the money. So, so with your parents, obviously, it not being encouraged for you to go to the cinema and stuff, when it came to the point in your life when you said, look, I want to actually work for the industry, I want to be a director, I want to get involved, was your dad very dismissive? Was he like, you need to get a proper job, son, this isn't for you? <laughs> no, it's quite funny. It was... Uh, I was quite, I, I had a talent for drawing, which I no longer have, but I had a talent for drawing. And it was assumed that uh, they certainly didn't want me to be um, uh, a painter or an artist. And they thought that you know, it would be much nicer if I was, you know, much more respectful if I was an architect. So I dutifully applied to Durham University um, to, be, you know, to go to architectural school in Newcastle at King's College. Anyway, I had a gap year, and I had some, you know, unlike my my son's generation, we didn't sort of skive off to India and smoke dope. I took a job teaching Latin in a local prep school, day school, and I made enough money to buy a camera. And during that gap, so I made a little film with a friend of mine who was rather. And then I went down to London. Um, I forget what excuse I gave for an interview. Anyway, I went to the London Film School, or then called the London School of Film Technique, which was above a butcher shop in Electric Avenue, Brixton. It was the only film school. It was the only film school in England at the time in the British Isles. So they, I showed them my little film, and they said, "Come as soon as you can." So I went back and announced to my parents, um, "I didn't want to go to. I didn't want to study architecture." I what I really wanted to do was study film and be a film director, which had always been my dream. But, you know, every time I mentioned it, I was, you know, people scoffed at me. Uh, anyway, my 
mother wept for two days. It was inconceivable. But my father actually took it very well. And he agreed to you know, help me. And in fact, uh, my first documentary, which was about Darren Miner's Gala, um, which I shot when I was 22, I think. Um, and the BFI put up half the money. And thankfully, my father um, invested the other half. So he, he was, I think, he thought film and film was, you know, was frivolous, um, except for the look of the North, which he adored, um, and Shade, which he thought was a terrific film. But apart from that, he thought it wasn't, you know, film and film was, was, was pretty frivolous. But once I ass uh, asserted myself and did my first two films were very well received and one not surprised it was Gala Day and then I did Inheritance about the end of the Algerian War and um, they were widely reviewed and they were serious films I mean you suddenly realised that filmmaking um, was not um, you know not a, a, a jaunt or it wasn't a sort of um, gateway into um, depravity <laughs> and um, Wild, wildness, and, you know. Anyway, but my mother never really was reconciled. You know, even though I, you know, I've had a pretty good. Well, I've been at it for sixty years. I mean, um, in the film business. So, uh, my father, thankfully, he died when he was fifty-two. So enough to know that uh, I was serious, and uh, I, you know, set out on on my my destiny, my fate. So I'm just um, doing the maths now, but was he around to see stuff like Hamburger Hill and the Dogs of War? And no, he died when I was when I was actually making a documentary about the uh, Civil War, Secret War, in the end. Um, so he only saw my first two films, right? Uh, which were documentaries. He never saw any of my television drama. Or that was in uh, later my feature films. Um, some of which he would have approved of, and some of which he wouldn't have. <laughs> it was quite. I mean, it was just. It was. Uh, you know, they were Presbyterians. I mean, they were Scottish. Um, you know, um, very moral people. Yeah. And looking at the eighties, you know, the the Dogs of War, Hamburger Hill, Raw Deal. Ghost story. There's all this work you were doing, and that's a hell of a run. I mean, did you ever sleep in the eighties or get any rest, or were you just <laughs> solidly working? Uh, I thought I had to catch up. I, I, I started making feature films uh, when I was uh, uh, around forty, and I thought I should have been actually doing it when I was. I should have been making feature films when I was thirty-five, or even earlier. I mean, I, 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 I think I was. I was desperate to catch up. And of course, the other thing is I, I just loved the process of making films. I just, you know, I, I just loved it. Um, and I wanted to make, you know, to visit as many genres as, you know, that came my way. So I was, I was ambitious and I was in demand. And, and getting to work, I mean, the Dogs of War, getting to work with Crystal Walken, for me, one of the best actors on the planet. That must have been one of the highlights of your whole career. <laughs> yeah, Norman Jerson was the producer of there. Yeah. Uh, and I think Norman wanted to direct it, but he was afraid that the subject matter would, uh, would, um, would put him in conflict with some of his 
more liberal friends that, that came my way. Um, and um, I was thrilled because, I mean, as a documentary director, I'd met a lot of those in Yemen uh, and even in Vietnam. Uh, so I, I was, uh, I, 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 I embraced the subject. Um, Having just come out of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, I wanted a bit something a bit less cerebral, and um, off I went uh, to make. Now Christopher Walken, um, I just finished. Uh, I got a, um, uh, an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for um, The Deer Hunter, and. Um, United Artists, Steve Barker, who was head of production there, felt that they'd underpaid him a bit and they, they wanted to, they, were, they really wanted to do him a favour. So I went to, and I, I visited Chris and persuaded him to do the film. And um, it was a leading role. And um, off we went, you know. Um, and it was a very, very happy um, collaboration. And at the moment, um, obviously, there's a re-release now of Raw Deal. And to work with someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's been in some of the biggest franchises, the biggest films, he is the guy that, for me, when I was growing up, I wanted to be, you know, Kindergarten Cop or Terminator or all these films. What was it like? Was he larger than life when you were trying to work with him or was he quite grounded? I'm very grounded. Uh, he's a, 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 he's um, he's got a good sense of self mockery too. And yeah. He, he, he said, you know, when we started working together, oh, John, he says, um, I know I'm not a no Larry Olivier, but I'm so happy to be acting. I want to act. And this was, of course, was when he was wooing um, Maria, his, his um, uh, future wife, and he wanted to say, go. The barbarian. Well, he wanted to put that behind him a bit as his, his wedding approach, and um, he wanted something a bit more, not cultivated. But this is the first film I will make without showing. But I want to be dressed the whole time. I don't want to take my clothes off. <laughs> Actually, he's always got a, either a t-shirt or a he didn't, didn't flex his muscles. Visibly, uh, although of course he, you know, every every morning before shooting, he, he had to work out to get his you know body into and in, 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 into trim. Um, but uh, no, he was uh, he was a delight actually. He was uh, he was uh, I, uh, he was uh, the only time I had a bit of a, bit of a problem with him was that he wanted to smoke cigars all the time, and I thought this, this was boring. There was another time, you know, how many cigars he could smoke. So I spoke to um, his um, sort of bodyguard, sort of gopher, um, Sven, a Swedish uh, muscle man. And I said, can you just talk to Arnold about this cigar smoking? It's, it's, um, he's hiding. I mean, he's, he, he's, he's using it as a prop and more ways than one. Can you, um, anyway, so don't worry. And uh, so the casino scene and, uh, you know, uh, crowded, one of the, I think, in terms of extras, the largest scene in the film, uh, in terms of numbers. Anyway, I had a long tracking shot as he walked into the casino and I shouted action and he strode in 
smoking a cigar. And I started to groan about shit cut when the <laughs> cigar exploded. I mean, it was a huge bang. Uh, uh, God, what's, you know, what's going on? You know, I, thought, I, just, I looked for blood and there was none, wasn't it? And what Sven had done was to go to Joe Lombardi, the uh, special effects supervisor, and they'd have put an ex a cap or an explosive in the cigar so it went and blew it, but blew obviously away from his face. Anyway, there was a stunned silence. Everyone froze at this explosion. And waited to see, I mean, there's you know, several beats of horror, of potential horror. Uh, we anticipated all sorts of you know, things to go through your mind at that moment very fast. You know, I'm going to shut it down, what, blah, 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 insurance, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and then suddenly in the silence, and he said, Sven? <laughs> And of course, Sven has, you know, as I said, arranged this explosive device with a, with a supervisor. Um, so it, always, it, was, it did actually uh, work very well. But I tell you that story really to show that he, 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 um, he, he certainly is, uh, he's not a prima donna in that sense. No. He's, a, he's much more um, active and temperamentally um, concerned and um, when it comes to making deals and also the distribution and promotion of the film. But on the floor, um, he was absolutely terrific. So what I did, I had a very good casting director um, and I just put, because um, he, he's not very agile. I mean, he's very, obviously a muscle man, but that doesn't mean he's fast. His reflexes, he's quite sort of, you know, Robotic, as you saw in the Terminator. I mean, he. So I, I really put him center, center screen, and bounced some of the best character actors in New York, you know, off him to make him look good. And he, I said, just don't do very much, and they'll make you look good. Which is what, what I did. Uh, if you look at you see everyone's whizzing around him, and he's not moving around very much. But the actors. I mean, we had a terrific cast. Sam Wanamaker, amongst them. Um, and um, having a, a, a really good cast around him made him, without doubt, made him look pretty much, much, you know, much smarter. Pauline Kale loved the film. And um, this is John Levin having a holiday. <laughs> uh, anyway. But no, he was a pleasure to work. He was, he was, he was, he was, um, he was, um, a joker. He was looking, you know, he was practical jokes and were, you know, part of his, um, I guess, part of his temperament, his personality, making, you know, um, making jokes. He was, uh, I mean, obviously he had a serious side to him. Yeah. Um, um, because he was, you know, very ambitious. But bear in mind, you know, when he's, you know, when he left, I think it was Ohio, Ohio State University, he'd already made his first million um, uh, by taking his prize money for in bodybuilding 
um, championships and pageants. Um, and he, um, I think he, I think it was the university, he used to duplicate, you know, his exercises of his, you know, like Charles Atlas, you know, his uh, system of bodybuilding and uh, would send it, you know, to, you know, advertising the bodybuilding magazines and um, the income from these you know, um, instructions um, he invested with his you know, on the advice of his friends who were doing you know um, business degrees in real estate and he made a lot of money before he went into uh, into into, into film, filmmaking so he's very canny um, and um, he was certainly, uh, you know, well, you know, um, well healed um, when he started his film career, which gave him a lot of, you know, you know, quite a lot of power. He you know, had to beg for it, but he did like. You know, he was very well aware of his, um, and very conscious of his appeal, and the, you know, what his audiences expected of him. You know, he was, um, from that point of view, he was, uh, he was uh, very mature. Uh, and now that you're at the point where you don't make films anymore, are you enjoying retirement? Do you like just to relax? No, you... no, I'm, I'm about to make a, a big concert film, actually. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I haven't really retired. Obviously, as you get older, um, um, People think you have retired. Um, no, but I'm, just, I'm, I'm developing film uh, at the moment about the Falklands War, and also um, uh, uh, discussing because uh, I've been asked to do it. Uh, a film about you know, a legendary jazz musician. Oh wow! Anyway, so uh, so it's um, no, I, 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 I still I still want to do it, um, and I still have the desire. To me, but I'm not. You know, you have to give way. So, you know, I was impatient. I was pushing people aside when I was young. So I know, I know the process. It's uh, you know, it's it's, it's um, quite natural. But I haven't. No, I certainly. I mean, film directors don't really stop working until the, you know, the telephones stopped ringing. I mean, that's as, as long as I mean, I. I, I, I'm working on um, two scripts at the moment, uh, as well as this concert film. So uh, it keeps my mind um, and my creative juices um, uh, doing pretty, you know, pretty well. Obviously, I, I wouldn't want to work as hard, as you say, in the 80s, 90s. No. I wouldn't want to be... I mean, I, I, I loved it because, you know, it's... Um, I was doing what I, you know, what I felt destined to do, and I was frankly having a tremendous amount of fun doing it um, overall. And, I mean, and what I, I do, I mean, Hamburger Hill was not a lot of fun, but I was very proud of the film. Um, Turtle Diary, which is a completely different kind of film, um, uh, was you know, very, was even harder to make in some respect. Um, but it was. Uh, David Lean said, never come out of the same hole twice. So I tried to vary you know, subjects 
and the, the genres as much as possible. Hamburger Hill is always in everyone's top 10 war films of all time and in all the reviews and all the polls I ever see online when they do the <laughs> films. So you, yeah. that that is an achievement. My, my dad's 85 and it's his, one of his all-time favourites. And uh, yeah. you can't, yeah. you know, it, it's hard to use words to sum up just how perfect that film is. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was incredibly hard. And... Um, I mean, do you want to hear about it? Awesome. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, my dad would be absolutely loving listening to this because. Uh, <laughs> well, first of all, it started, the genesis of the film started when I was a documentary filmmaker. And I made a black and white documentary. It was the last black and white documentary I think the BBC made. And I was, uh, I was asked by the uh, head of Omnibus, which was an arts program. What you know, it was the film I wanted to make. And I said, Yes, I'd very much like it was the end of the 60s, you know, swing London and you know, all that stuff. Bullshit. And I said, Yeah, what I'd like to do is make a film about war photographers because they're the only artists um, who you know have to risk their lives in the execution of their art. You know, they, and, you know when everyone's lying flat or digging in. A photographer, a war photographer, is standing up or crouched, and he's very vulnerable. And he's expected to, you know, you know put himself at risk. And um, I said, yeah, go off and, you know, off you go, go and do it. So I chose Vietnam, and I followed in Vietnam um, Larry Burroughs up on the DMZ. And... Uh, Made a film about authors, and I was, you know, profoundly, deeply shocked by what I saw, and so much so that it was then that I decided I didn't want to make documentaries anymore. And when I came back to Europe, and I was doing some filming in London with Don McCullen, um, I, I I decided that one day if I made feature films, I would make one about Vietnam because I thought what was asked of, um, what was asked of these young Americans, you know, 18, 19 years old, what was asked of them was just appalling. You know, I was, I mean, I was 29 when I was in Vietnam and they were, you know, they were kids. I felt like an old man. Like, I mean, I was a lot older. Anyway, what they were, we helicoptered into a battle on a hilltop. It wasn't obviously, it wasn't Hamburg Hill, but it was, it was, you know, you ran out of the helicopters and, you know, just ran between lines of body bags and all that. Anyway, we got stuck. Chris Mangus was the camera and Alan Shaker sound. We were stuck on this hilltop. And all hell broke loose in the middle of the night, <coughs> and because um, they couldn't be saved because of the fog. And I mean, there were I mean, there were young eighteen-year-old Marines going into behind into enemy lines behind their lines just to find you know fragments or you know uh, of body parts to put in a bag to send home of their friends. You know, they were, you know, hadn't been long since they were you know. Uh, in the Midwest or you know, all over America, 
you know, as kids, but in high school, and they were, I thought the conduct of the generals, certainly the ones I met, was absolutely, um, I just thought it was reprehensible. It was, you know, except it, it, it sort of lingered in me. And also I felt that the, the, the Vietnam films that I'd seen um, didn't really honor or respect or show what it was, what it was like there. So uh, I was asked by, I was in, in New York, I think, and I was asked by the head of European production, Marshall Nasty, who was retiring from 20th Century Fox, um, are there any films I wanted to make? And I said, well, I'd really like to make a film set in Vietnam. She said, well, I've got a script that I can't get Fox to do. Read it, and if you like it, um, let's see if we can, you know, get it made. So I read it um, that afternoon and said, yes, this is just, 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 just what I want to do. This is perfect, absolutely perfect. Well, Fox weren't going to make it. I mean, those, at that time, uh, Vietnam was was a known as far as the studios were concerned. Anyway, so we set it out, uh, set out to raise money um, um, for the independence, and the RKO uh, came in uh, with the help of my agent Sam Kern, and um, eventually we we got enough money to make the film. Really low budget, about six and a half million. And but I do, I do remember vividly because Ned Tannen, who was head of the head of uh, of uh, Paramount, and who I'd made a ghost story for when he was at Universal, and I, you know, remained on very good good terms with me. He became uh, a friend, and I pleaded with him to do the film. I pleaded with him. I said, come on, you're a Marine career. Come on, you understand this stuff. He said, John, we're doing, you know, candles, and, you know, I want to make films for teenagers, and not, not that it's not part of the Paramount, Paramount, um, you know, uh, program, that we can't do films like this. Anyway, so... We make the film, we go off and make the film. And it is, I mean, I think I lost 24, 26 pounds making it. Um, it was very, very tough. We used to arrive, I found this hill in, in the Philippine, about three hour drive from from Manila, uh, two and a half drive, so, and which was a pretty good replica for Hamburger, Hamburger Hill. And, um, we used to drive, we used to get up about uh, five o'clock, half past four, set out, get to the location of the jungle, and we'd hacked out or um, uh, a um, construction, we'd hacked out something like, I think it's uh, 2,000 steps into the jungle, and we carried all the equipment down into the jungle and stayed there till the sunset. It was about six o'clock, then we climbed up, brought all the kit back up out of the jungle, um, and went back to Manila. I see the rushes in the lab on the outskirts, get to bed probably about half past 11 o'clock, and we go up again at about half past four or five o'clock. This went on seven days a week, I and mean, it was, it was you know, very, very, very tough. And you know, we had people died on the, on, on the shoot. Um, 
and people died very, many people died very shortly afterwards. So it was, and I had to send quite a lot of the technicians home because they just couldn't, couldn't do it. The crew hated me. They were all. I'm not surprised, <laughs> really. That sounds like a... <laughs> was pouring water. I was asking them to do things that they just had never done before. Um, luckily, the grips were, were very, very well disposed to what I was attempting to do. And, um, and the art department. So we, we struggled on, and we did it, you know, we shot it in 40, 40, 44 days. Um, but it was, it was tough. It's interesting. Um, when I meet actors who were in the film, in the Don Cheadle, people like that, um, they always say it was hell, hamburger hell, but they would, they're very, very proud of the film. Yeah. Um, I have no regrets. I mean, it's, I know, I mean, particularly in America, uh, it's considered, um, it has a reputation which is, which it doesn't have here, but it's, it's, um, it's, and I'm very proud of that film. I mean, it is, I mean, there are moments, like, for instance, I mean, when we started, we started showing it previews, and, it, and ultimately, when the film was finished, the word in, on the streets in Hollywood was, uh, Amber Girls a pretty, pretty good film, and suddenly, with Platoon winning so many prizes and doing so well, suddenly, you know, it came, it, um, it uh, was a hot, really hot property. Anyway, the Marsh and Nassau said, well, who, do you, who should we show to at first? Because every studio was ringing up saying, John, we love you, we've always been there. You know, blah, 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 <laughs> all bullshit. And I said, well, the only person I want to show it to, I want to show it to Ned Tannen of Paramount first. Yeah. Um, because he was friend, but he, you know, he turned me down. So <laughs> we went into a screening room on Sunset. And <clears throat> with him, of course, all his minions were with him. And my agents were sitting behind me. And I sat behind Ned and just to see what his reaction would be. At the end of the film, the lights came up and there was a very long silence. And because um, the, the protocol is you know, the head of the studio speaks first and everybody just repeats what he, what he thinks and feels. Um, so it was a very long silence and I thought, oh God. And he turned, he, he turned around in his seat and faced me and there were tears streaming down his cheeks. And he said, John, this is a paramount picture. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely shameless. <laughs> wow. Uh, absolutely shameless. So that's where we... Um, amazing uh, story, uh, amazing. Uh, so that's very briefly. It was, I mean, it was a very moving. I mean, I, I, at the beginning, we, we um, had some test previews and we showed it to veterans. Um, and I think, the, what was the first show? I think it was in, in New York, somewhere in New Jersey, I think. And um, uh, we had to have counselors in the auditorium because um, the, the reaction to veterans, the veterans were, some of them were just reminded of them, the horrors and the, and they had to be sort of counseled. When we showed them in um, in, uh, in Los Angeles, we showed it in the Paramount Theatre for a preview, and uh, I had seen it so many times. I was in, I 
it seemed to be going pretty well. So I went, I stood on the, towards the end of the film. I, I didn't want to listen to the, um, the uh, target group. And I said, well, and there was a woman standing um, on the steps and I had a cigarette and she said, are you the, are you part of the fight? I said, yeah, directly. She said, well, I just want to thank you. I said, you want to thank me for what? He said, I just want to thank you for saving my marriage. Wow. Uh, and I said, really? How do I do that? She said, well, my husband was uh, in Vietnam and he was um, an artillery officer and he was given the wrong, the wrong, um, you know, um, reading map coordinates. Yeah. And he, and a lot of soldiers were killed by friendly fire. And he's never told me this until tonight. And during the friendly fire sequence, he got out of his seat and walked out. Of, and I said, well, where is he? He said, he's out there somewhere in the car park weeping. Wow. That's a very good story, and I really appreciate you sharing it with me, John. Well, I don't you know, it's only to tell you that it was an incredibly emotional yeah. experience for lots of reasons. I mean, it's, um, and, um, you know, it, it, it's reputation um, seems to, you know, increase year by year. I mean, I have seen anthologists saying how much it's, how good it is, you know. What, what I do, John, on the podcast, and this is my final question, but it is putting you, yep, on, the, sure. it's putting you on the spot, is... Um, <laughs> It's every episode of the podcast gets the guest to choose the outro piece of music. So I've had Anthony Hopkins on here, I've had Mads Mickelson, I've had Kevin Smith, and all of them have chosen a different piece of music or a song that closes. So once we've finished our interview today and it's all edited, the music that plays at the very end is chosen by you. So you only get one choice, and I'm not going to let you have long to think about it, but what's a song or a piece of music that means so much to you that you would like to end today on? I think think the music that I cherish most of the, certainly um, of the, Films and television I made would be the entitled the music for Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is the Nocturne um, Yeah. By, uh, com- composed by Jeffrey Bergen. And again, you know, everyone told me I was mad to do that. The BBC said there's no commercial. <laughs> there's no commercial. Um, Prospects for this piece of music, and of course, it went absolutely, um, you know, went viral. I mean, it was became in terms of sheet music, it went to the top of every, every, every chart. And it is a haunting piece of music. Um, and I was a chorister when I was at school for a time at Durham, and so I'd say, do not demit us, as you know, certainly encapsulates. Um, a lot of the, the, um, the feelings I have about um, 
had soldiers and uh, people who sacrificed their lives um, for the greater good. It's, so a, cool. it's, it's a beautiful <laughs> choice and um, I'm already looking forward to listening to it now and ending it and then listen to it again. So uh, okay. it's in a very emotional music. So uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. We've, we've gone over by twice as long. So I'm hoping I'm not going to... Time flies when you're having fun, right? I hope no one's going <laughs> to get, get in trouble for this. But um, it's... Anyway, I'm sorry about that. It's much appreciated and I do hope in the future our, our paths cross again because I'd love to sit down and I feel like we've only just kind of scratched the surface today. I think you've probably got hours and hours of stories to tell and I'd love to do it again sometime. Okay, okay. whenever you want. All thank right. you. Well, enjoy the rest of today and uh, I you really too. appreciate your time. Yeah. And, uh, thank you for the questions. Thank Very you good. and have a lovely rest of the day. Yeah. And give my best to your father. I will I do. We're, so. we're going to watch that at the weekend. I want to sit down and watch it again with him now after I <laughs> tell him that I spoke to the man that made this. Very good. All right. Perfect. Thank Thanks you very so much. much. Take All care now. Bye-bye. So there it is. There's my interview with me and the absolute legend that is John Irvin, an amazing director, an incredible filmmaker, and what a great guy to share some of those incredible, intense stories with me on today's episode. For me, personally, it was a treat for him to come on and, my God, to share those memories with my dad now and talk all about Hamburger Hill, which is one of his favourite war films, for me, is personally a dream come true. So a massive thanks for John. And as you heard at the end, he's going to come back. We're going to talk more in the very near future. If you've enjoyed today's episode and I'll keep on banging this drum, please, please share this episode. All the links are on markandme.com. There's Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And all you have to do is hit the retweet button or share button on Twitter and Facebook or put it as a story on Instagram. And you may not realise, but then some of your friends will see this or your followers and then suddenly they check it out. And before you know it, they're subscribed to Mark and Me and listening each and every week. And that is marketing that money can't buy. So please, if you've enjoyed today, share, share, share. Also, thanks to my amazing friends at Richer Sounds, I have some great prizes to give away. And this is each and every month to say thank you for supporting me via Patreon. Patreon is a site that basically you can go ahead and give me maybe a pound or two or three pounds a month to say thanks for the podcast. All that money then goes right back into the podcast and allows me to host it on directories like Amazon, Spotify, Podomatic and many more. It also allows me to travel the country and go out there and do more and more interviews, which means more and more episodes for you guys at home. So if you've enjoyed today's episode and just want to throw me like a little tip, the link is on all my descriptions to the episode or just go on markandme.com and there's a link on there. I'll be back in only a few days time with another brand new episode. It's going to be huge and I can't wait to share it. So until then, go and watch some John Irvin films, look after yourself, take care and I'll speak to you all very soon. <laughs>